The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Brett Lanier. Brett was accepted into West Point and Annapolis, but a poor decision almost derailed his career before it could begin. While at West Point and in the military, Brett was selected for and participated in activities and programs that stretched the limits of his capabilities and his influence. Whether participating in CTLT, in a pilot program for a Ranger Battalion, leading aviation units, or expanding the reach and influence of an organization as an ORSA, Brett gravitated towards difficult tasks. That didn't end upon retirement. Brett founded a company for online betting and fantasy sports. This is his story. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods, and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military, and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome to Through the Gray. Uh, today we're here with Brett Lanier. How you doing, Brett? I'm doing well, thank you. So first question, why West Point? <laughs> uh, great question. Obviously a good, good place to start. Um, I, I grew up in uh, Columbia, Maryland. Um, you know, in probably 20, 30 minutes from Baltimore and Washington, D.C. and, and Annapolis. And, uh, you know, I, I loved, um, you know, Top Gun and, and um, uh, a book uh, by Pat Conroy about uh, a Marine aviator and his son. Um, and so I, I kind of uh, thought I wanted to go be a Marine fighter pilot. And so originally I thought I was going to go to the Naval Academy. And uh, um, so that was kind of the plan. Parents, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Parents were like, hey, look, you need to either get a college scholarship or, or join the military. Um, originally was just going to apply to Navy. Luckily, my mom convinced me to also apply to West Point. I thought it was a, a great school as well. Um, 
and then got in, was a principal nominee. Um, that was the plan. And then uh, spring of our, my senior year in high school, I got a DUI. Um, you know, I was uh, under the legal limit, but, uh, you know, being under 21, you can't have any alcohol in your system. So um, got charged with it, uh, did some community service and all that kind of stuff. And um, it got expunged from the record. But when, when the police record check form, it was time to turn it in. I knew it wasn't going to show up or it shouldn't show up, but wanted to be honest. You know, was, I was going to the academy, um, you know, the values were about uh, honor and, and integrity. So I went to, the, you know, wrote a letter, went to the Naval Academy, told them, hey, here's the deal. You're not going to, it's not going to come back on the police record check form, but I did get in trouble. Here's what happened. It's never going to happen again. This is why. Uh, here's what I've done about it, you know, but wanted to be honest with you. And um, they basically were like, okay, great. Uh, we don't want you anymore. <laughs> we're, and we know you applied to West Point. We're calling West Point, telling them what happened. We're calling your senator, telling them what happened. Um, and, you know, withdrawing your nomination. Um, and I was like, oh, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do anymore. And then uh, the next month was a little rough, but I uh, figured I'd uh, probably go to a local. I'd gotten an academic scholarship to a school in Maryland. I, th- I thought maybe I'd go there. And then a couple of weeks before graduation, got a uh, letter in the mail from West Point with my acceptance letter. And I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, obviously surprised. So I called up admissions and was like, hey, uh, I'm a little confused. I, you know, I, I got in trouble. Here's what happened. I told the Naval Academy. I, they told me they were going to tell you. Uh, so was there a mistake or did you know about this? And they basically, I can't remember who it was at admissions, but it was great. And he was like, we, we know about it. Uh, we're aware. Thank you for your honesty. We want you to come here anyways. And all of a sudden I, I felt um, intense gratitude, right? Like I, I felt um, so thankful that they, I was given a second chance, right? I, I thought that I, you know, my dreams were all shut down. And, and so when I showed up to West Point, um, I felt like I didn't deserve to be there, right? Like there were so many great people in our class, so many like accomplished, just good people that hadn't made stupid mistakes, uh, or at least I wasn't aware of them. And um, I didn't feel like I belonged. And so it probably drove me so much harder. Right? Like if I would have shown up to, to West Point without that happening, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have done that well there. And I think, um, you know, feeling that I had to prove them right, right, that I that I wanted to reward West Point that um, for giving me that like chance that, you know, which is stupid, you know, eight, 18 year old kids like uh, I need to prove to you that you were right. And I'm going to do really well and and uh, make you proud that you accepted Brett Lanier and gave him that second chance. And um, so I, I think that ended up changing the way I experienced that at least the first couple of years. And then I showed up and you know after Beast, my my plebe year roommates first semester were uh, Young Kim and John Alexis, and I can't remember which was which, but like one of them scored like. 1580 on the SATs. And I think the other one had a 1600. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> I am not at the same level as these guys. And so that even, that like even 
doubled it down. It was like, oh God, these people, all these people that are here are so amazing. I don't deserve to be here. You know, <laughs> a little imposter syndrome. I didn't know it at the time, but yeah. So you're doubling down. You're trying to prove West Point right uh, for taking a risk on you. Um, and you're trying to prove it to yourself. How'd that go? Uh, it, it went pretty well. I, I, I did well, um, while I was there, uh, you know, academically, um, was okay. Physically, it was okay. Militarily. Um, but it was still a struggle. I mean, there were, there were a lot of times, I mean, obviously beast was, you know, our day and beast were a struggle making that transition and, and how difficult that was. Plebe year, reorg week, definitely tough. But, um, you know, I, I had a great company. H1 was awesome, you know, and, and still so close with so many of those uh, root hogs today um, that when I was struggling plebe year with, you know, plebe year history, uh, I guess world history, um, you know, guys like John Hopkins or, or Jim Warren or Jim Nicholson would like hold these all night study sessions, you know, to, to help. Like it would be a full room of, you know, 15 of us all in there trying to get smart from uh, just listening to these guys and, and helping us prepare. Um, so ended up doing well, mostly because of um, the help of, of friends. Um, but, uh, it was mostly a good experience. So West Point has highs and lows. What was really the, the low point for you at West Point where you questioned if you could get through it? Oh, uh, I probably had a couple of those during Beast and, and maybe one or two plebe year, but the, probably the biggest low came between junior and senior year, uh, when I went to CTLT, uh, the cadet troop leader training, you know, our, our internship at, in the army. Um, I really bought in to everything at West Point. You know, I, I was totally indoctrinated. I, you know, running the cadences and I want to be an airborne ranger. I was like, yeah, I do want to be an airborne ranger. You know, like, uh, Buckner's very infantry based. Uh, I, I had done my, um, cadet, uh, I can't remember what they're called. The cadet summer where you're cadre as a Buckner two, um, you know, platoon sergeant and, and out doing all the infantry stuff. I, I thought I wanted to go infantry and become a, you know, airborne ranger and eventually go special forces. Um, so they opened up for the first time in a long time before our senior year, the opportunity to apply, to go to CTLT with, either one of the Ranger battalions or special forces groups and, um, you know, went through the, the selection process and luckily, uh, got selected and went down to, uh, Savannah to first Ranger battalion. And when I showed up, they, you know, my, my initial counseling with my company commander who was there, um, was you don't deserve to be here. You haven't been through ranger school. You haven't been through rope. Um, you know, we don't want you, <laughs> but you know, you've got to be here for the next month. So, 
here, we'll, we'll put you through some training, right? So definitely didn't feel welcome from the beginning. And uh, they kind of made it clear a lot of the time that, uh, you know, I didn't deserve to be there. They don't care about, you know, any special trial at West Point or anything like that. Um, but did some really awesome training, right? He was, you know, they had just lost a platoon leader there. Um, so there was a, a spot. He's like, you can act as a platoon leader, go through the training, do some, you know, advanced rifle marksmanship stuff and building clearing and, you know, demolition and, and close quarters combat. A lot of things that are like standard in, in the army now, but back then in, in the summer of 2000, you know, people weren't doing uh, combatives or, or Brazilian jiu-jitsu type stuff. They weren't doing the the room clearing and, and multiple building, you know, uh, type stuff that, that the Rangers were. So that was really cool training. And then the last week we were there, they had an emergency deployment readiness exercise. And it was um, a scenario where... Um, it was kind of like a, a blend of Somalia and, and Bosnia and Kosovo type stuff. There was, you know, we, we were told, um, so, so all the, all the Rangers wear a, a pager back then, <laughs> kind of like if you've ever seen the Charlie Sheen movie, uh, Navy SEALs when they're at the wedding and their pagers all go off and they have to go in. Um, everybody wears this pager. They're on alert. The, they push a button at, at battalion headquarters. Everybody's pager goes off. And, you know, we go all in, um, you've got bags packed already, you turn in your car keys and then they brief you on what the mission is. And then you go, um, to potentially wherever the hotspot might be in the world. They knew it was an Idri. They decided that they were going to let me go along. Um, we, we get there, we get briefed. The mission's kind of, there's this fake country, uh, probably Krasnovia or somewhere, um, where, there were no declared hostilities. We didn't have any declared enemies, but there were groups hostile to the U.S. There was a group that had taken some U.N. peacekeepers hostage, and the Rangers were going to uh, try to rescue them. So we were jumping into Geronimo drop zone and, and, at JRTC, um, and then uh, in this like mass battalion jump at night, and then we're going to overnight do a 20K foot infiltration across the box and um, go to do this urban assault at Schubert Gordon to rescue these hostages. Um, so I had graduated from Airborne School the year before, and I, I went like the week before um, 4th of July. So we ended up, you know, they wanted to get us all out for the four-day weekend. We ended up not doing any night jumps. So, you know, I show up uh, on a five jump jump and um, I've never done a night jump. And so we get on the airplane, we're getting ready to go. Um, oh, I guess let me back up. We uh, ended up getting a platoon leader in, but the RTO had to, was off on leave. So I was they're like, oh, well, you be the RTO. You'll be right next to the platoon leader the whole time. You'll learn that way. So because we're doing this long foot infiltration across the box, just assault packs, 25 pounds max, all that kind of stuff. I'm the RTO. I've got the radio, the old singers. I've got spare batteries. I've got spare batteries for the squad radios, all this kind of stuff. They load up, load it all up. Uh, when I weighed my pack getting on the plane, it was 98 pounds. Um, I'm doing my first ever night jump. We go to get on the plane and none of us have parachutes on, right? Like all I know is everyone's cool where, you know, you put on the pack and you're wearing it for 
three hours getting checked by, uh, you know, jump master, probably like 10 times before you get on a plane. We get on the plane, there's no parachutes. I'm like, what's going on? How is this going to work? They're like, oh, yeah, we're just going to do an in-flight rig. We'll just, you put on the parachute on the plane and, you know, you check your buddy off you, and he checks you off and then, and then you jump on the plane. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> first, first ever did I jump, never do an in-flight rig. One, I don't feel comfortable checking anybody else off. Please, you know, somebody else look. Um, but uh, it's like, okay, cool, let's do this. Um, they, when I had showed up at, at Benning, they didn't have enough compasses. So I didn't have a compass. Part of the thing was once you landed, you shot an azimuth into the woods and, and met at the little rally point. I'm like, hey, I don't have a compass. How am I going to do this? Tony was like, look, just get jump right behind me in the line, in the stick. And when we get out of the plane, you know, we'll land close by and then we'll just link up and, and run there together. And uh, so we're going to jump. We're at the very end of the stick. Um, and when we get to the door, um, I'm about to jump out my first night jump. And jump master's like, stop, stop, stop. My platoon leader, uh, the red light went out the door, ended up landing in the trees. Um, and I got separated. So guys like, okay, unhook, go to the back of the plane. You can jump on the next pass. Couldn't get my uh, hook unhooked. Um, ended up, um, you know, the guy's like, I got to get this next group out. So then the next group jump. Now my hook is stuck in between all these uh, other old, you know, parachute um, backpack type things. Uh, and he's like, well, sorry, man. Uh, I guess you're not going on the jump. I can't get it undone. You know, jump master's trying to get it unhooked. He can't. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm the RTO. I've got to be on the mission. I got to go. Eventually, he takes pulls a knife out of his pocket, cuts my cord, takes another hook out of his pocket, ties a knot onto the end of my jump line, you know, on my line, and is like, okay, go to the back of the line and hook up. And I'm like, oh, my God, I hope this guy was a Boy Scout. I hope this <laughs> knot holds as I'm about to jump out of this plane. Um, so, obviously, anxiety is through the roof at this point. Um and, and uh, they've done a couple more passes. So eventually I'm like, the last one's out. Uh, luckily, I'm like, shoot, obviously, spoiler alert, sh shoot opens. I didn't die. Um, but I'm at the very south end of the airfield. I'm supposed to be on the north end. I go to throw my pack on, start sprinting. It's July in, in Louisiana. It's like 105 degrees at midnight, 100% humidity. Um, in hindsight, I didn't, I didn't hydrate enough. I wasn't... Uh, preparing my body the way I should have the, the day or two prior and uh, finally get linked up. Um, and long story short, over, over the course of the next few hours, as we're um, marching through the swamps, I ended up going down as a heat casualty um, and with, with a neck injury as well. That I don't want to get into how deep, you know, into more details, but um, end up getting evac'd out. But, the, I, I basically took out a squad, right? Like they had to drag me on a little skidco through the swamps um, for about two, two and a half hours, I think, until they got to a LZ where I could get, uh, you know, helicopter come medevac, take me to the hospital. Um, and so at the end of it, um, you know, the, I, I came and got, my platoon leader came and got me once the mission was all over. And got hazed worse than I'd ever been at West Point. Right? Like just 
ripped just how I was such a, you know, a piece of, you know, whatever, uh, and, and was worthless. And, you know, you can't go down as a leader and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, God, that, that sucked. Then the company commander comes, grabs me and he kind of gets, goes into it. It's like, you know, if you were a real Ranger platoon leader right now, you'd be immediately relieved of your platoon. You'd be, um, kicked out of the Ranger battalion and your career would be over. Uh, oh yeah, this sucks. Um, so luckily, you know, you know, sat around for another day or so, um, went back to Savannah and then it, there was only a day or two left to CTLT and, uh, went for my OER out brief with the battalion commander, uh, Colonel Joe Votel, uh, later the SOCOM and CENTCOM four-star commander. Um, and the OER that I got, the, the evaluation was pretty bad, right? It was, you know, wax intestinal fortitude and, you know, a couple of things saying that, like, I was not going to be, not only I wasn't ranger battalion material, but I wasn't even going to be a good officer, right? And that uh, I was just terrible. So that was kind of crushing, but, you know, took another week of leave, came back to West Point, And uh, a few days after being there, my tech comes and grabs me. He's like, what happened on CTLT? And I'm like, oh, man, yeah, I got to tell you this story. And he's like, yeah, it's the, uh, <laughs> the BTO and the comm want to see you. They're going to fail you for CTLT. You're going to be a turn back. You're going to have to do another year at West Point and, and you know, do CTLT again next summer. And I'm like, oh, man, that sucks. I, I thought it was bad before. Now, like, uh, it's, it's gotten worse. Um, luckily, t- told him the story. He took me to the RTO. Uh, told RTO the story, and RTO was like, "You, I, I got this. Let me, uh, let me go talk to Colonel Domchek and, and, and the com." And um, came back. They weren't going to fail me. I got like a C minus, I think, uh, for for that, uh, but was able to to continue and, and graduate on time. Um, so then, a, a few days later, it was time to put in your branch preferences, and. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I've, I've always wanted to be this infantry guy since I've showed up at West Point and wanted to go special forces. But like, you know, maybe I'm not meant for it. Maybe maybe Colonel Votel and, and the company commander are right. Maybe, I, you know, there was a lot of self-doubt, right? Like, hey, maybe maybe I'm not as tough as I thought. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought. All, all those kind of emotions. And um, I ended up saying, OK, well. Maybe I'll go aviation back back to what I thought I was going to do before, and uh, so picked aviation, um, and that that kind of changed the the trajectory of of the career a little bit. And so you you graduate with that that big hurdle uh, past you behind you, um, and the initial hurdle of even getting into West Point, and now you're going to be an aviator. Uh, walking into uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, and, and Officer Basic. How did that go? Flight school and, and OBC went well. Um, it, you know, I uh, had a lot of good friends there. It was, you know, we, we some of us made up for some of the time uh, that we missed uh, the experience, the social experience that we thought we missed out on at a, at a regular college, and that was a a good year and a half. Um, learned a lot. Obviously, it was, it was a little more challenging <laughs> than I expected. I, for some reason, I thought flying a helicopter wasn't that hard, but uh, it, it was surprisingly, it's uh, quite difficult. 
and there's a lot you got to know and uh, a lot of studying to be done that I didn't do at the beginning. Uh, so, uh, but, but ended up going well, uh, ended up getting Blackhawks, getting stationed in Germany. Um, and so that was good and, and showed up to Germany in December of '02. Um, and then just, just as I was about to start my unit training, because as an aviator, you know, you get your flight school, you learn how to fly, but they don't say you're ready to fly with the unit until you go through actual training with that unit, your readiness level progression from three to two to one, one, when you're finally able to, to fly missions, you have to go through with, and get checked off on all the tasks with an instructor pilot there. So just as I was about to start everything with, um, the possible Iraq invasion was getting ready to start. So, you know, we sent the, all of our helicopters away to get uh, prepped to go on the boat. We did a, a mission that basically was the rehearsal for the invasion of Iraq. There was at uh, Grafenbeer um, with, you know, representatives of like seven different division headquarters and some core headquarters. Um, and I was like a, a liaison for that. Um, and then we got ready to, to deploy and um, we realized I was there as the XO in, in an aviation unit. There's not a MTO uh, executive officer position. So when you get one more Lieutenant that you've got platoon leader spots for, they call them the XO, which is the extra officer. And you basically just do all the, you know, anything that needs to be done that, that's not normal flying because you're not really the priority until you get trained. So, you know, the, uh, we had some Humvees and the only non, um, crew member positions in the aviation unit is the first sergeant, and the platoon sergeants, but you know, we needed, uh, we were short one platoon sergeant. So they decided they needed to send me to Humvee training. Uh, and I could learn how to drive a Humvee. Uh, forget that I had just been through flight school and knew how to fly a helicopter now. Now I had to go learn how to drive a Humvee <laughs> for two weeks. Um, so I did that so that I could drive the Humvees from Kuwait up to Baghdad. Um, and then we deployed, you know, went to Kuwait, uh, did the, the 500 mile drive from Kuwait up to Baghdad. That went fine. Um, and then got to Baghdad and was like, I'm still RL3. Like I can't, I can't do anything. Like, I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to sit here for 15 months, you know, managing the talk and not flying. Um, and eventually they decided they would uh, let me do my training there in Baghdad. So I did my initial training, which is, you know, traffic pattern stuff in, a, in Norway at an airport at BIAP, uh, you know, flying in the traffic pattern of BIAP, learning to do my emergency procedures and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, then eventually I get signed off to RL2 and they let me go on missions and I just couldn't carry passengers. So one of our missions was flying around, um, you know, the generals, uh, the CG and the uh, assistant division commander for maneuver and the assistant division commander for support um, all over the Baghdad uh, operating area. So I basically became the uh, ADCS, assistant division commander for sports chase aircraft. So he would fly uh in the front aircraft and i would always fall behind them as their wingman you know in case they crashed i would pick them up but for the most part didn't carry pastors and was able to sign up all my mission tasks um like that so the first like two or three months i was there 
Um, I flew with like an instructor pilot every day, learning, <laughs> learning the missions in combat. Um, you know, the first time I'd ever done a sling load, you know, you only get like a couple hours in the black pocket at, at uh, uh, Fort Rucker at the time. Most of it's in the TH-67 and the OH-58. Um, so my first time ever doing a sling load was actually going in and picking up the anti-aircraft guns that were all over uh, surrounding Baghdad Airport and you know, picking them up and, and bringing them to the graveyard um, so that the Saddam loyalists didn't use them to shoot us down. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there were some, there were some very interesting um, training missions, I would say during that time. Um, I got uh, my initial nickname, uh, you know, pilot nickname during that time um, from, from a, obviously a big mistake, but uh, uh, I, I basically had a hot mic experience. Um, you know, I was supposed to be doing a cross country, flight you know you're five miles out before you get to the five miles within a, a big airport you have to con- get positive radio contact with the tower at the time baghdad airport was probably the busiest airport in the world you know with, with the number of flights that were going on there between the fighter jets and the, the supply aircraft and you know all the different air, air force aircraft the navy aircraft and then all the army helicopters in the area quite quite busy there was a the air traffic control there was um some uh, Australian um, ATC people and, and just beautiful voice, right? Like you loved hearing them talk every time they got on the radio. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, they sound so good. Um, and uh, basically had a hot mic experience with them. Got, got a funny nickname from that. Um, but otherwise, you know, it was, it was a successful um 15 months, you know, it sucked getting extended. Uh, we thought we were done, finished out the 12 months, went down to Kuwait, and then uh, all the Mahdi Army stuff kicked off in, uh, I guess that was July of 2004. And, and so they they told us, hey, you got to go back. You know, like some of our units had already made it back to Germany. We had, I had one of my soldiers was getting married and another had like planned a cruise and was non-refundable and all this kind of stuff. And we basically were like, Look, you did a great job. You survived your year, but you know things are going bad up there. They need us. They need our help. We got to go back, and, and then uh, went back. Did another three months um, again in the Baghdad AO, and luckily um, was able to bring everybody home, and and it went well. Um, so I know that was probably a lot longer than than we had planned, but. Uh, <laughs> No, the so, question I have is, is 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 that first Iraq experience. Obviously, um, aviation is very deliberate um, in the training up they're doing uh, for basic course. Um, you saw it with your first sergeants and your your NCOs making sure that you were two weeks of training with the Humvee before you drove north. Um, did that year of training and progression? How did that compare to like being thrown straight into the fire? Or what appeared to be straight into the fire with the Ranger Bat? Um. I think I definitely felt a lot more prepared. Um, you know, th- there were definitely times um, where you, you never know how you're going to react until something um, happens when, when you when you have contact. You know, there was uh, I had a lot of close calls. I probably had seventeen or eighteen very close calls that year. Um, you know, the first time 
flying at night and the anti-aircraft gun, you know, shoots pretty close to you and you're like, Oh, <laughs> you know, these massive looking tracers, um, you know, are flying past your aircraft. Scary. Had a, uh, aircraft shot down with a surface air missile right in front of us, um, at, at Biaf, like as we were coming down the land, um, you know, close calls with, with RPGs. Um, you know, I feel like I felt prepared, you know, it wasn't ever the panic. I don't know if it's just all the time they drilled into you or, or what, but, um, Felt okay most of that time. Uh, you know, there were some very close calls flying under MBGs where we almost crashed that that probably shook me up a lot more. But definitely felt better than um, going to the range of time. Or, or, or it might have been being more mentally or emotionally prepared as a result of having gone through that failure. I'm not sure. Um, but it felt felt pretty good. Um, and, and didn't feel um, unprepared like the range of time, except maybe once. Uh, early on, I guess the first two months we were there, in the middle of my progression, uh, our battalion commander thought that because we were supporting the ground elements, we needed to empathize with them, our customers. And so he sent all of the lieutenants on a rotational thing to go do ground patrols with our cab unit that was attached to our aviation brigade. And so, you know, doing ground patrols in Baghdad um, with those guys, at that point I felt not trained for, and ready for that, right? Like I hadn't done that since the Ranger CTLT. Um, that was uh, an unnerving um, experience, but otherwise I, I felt like relatively prepared. Um, and so you come out of Iraq, the first deployment, um, 15 months. And you prepare um, for the next deployment. What does the preparation go like? And then how, do you, how did you feel armed after that, that first experience? Did you feel armed and prepared uh, to take command? Um, so the, ex the experience was in an aviation unit, especially that first time we went into like a full on reset, right? Like all of our aircraft went to depot for, for, uh, you know, repairs and, and upgrades and whatever they had to do. Um, because there was like a stop loss for the unit before we went for a couple months, um, you know, 90 days after we got back, like, uh, everybody that was supposed to PCS during that year or 15 months that we were gone plus the 90 days. So that's a year and a half plus the six months of stop loss prior to us going, Basically, two years worth of people, two two thirds of the unit, all PCS'd, um, you know, ninety days after we got back, uh, just as I took over as the battalion S one, and um, all of a sudden, you know, it was all the senior people. So the senior people were the instructor pilots, the maintenance test pilots, things like that. We had a bunch of new W ones and lieutenants. We we were at like one hundred and eighty percent for W ones and lieutenants, but we were at like twenty five percent for instructor pilots and maintenance test pilots. So when the aircraft did start coming back, um, you know, they required maintenance. And then we started um, the instructor pilots training the new people. Um, and those of us that had, had been there a while, we were, especially the staff, we were low priority. So a number of us for that next uh, almost two years that we were still left there, I guess a year and a half or so, um, most of the staff, we never flew again. 
Um, and so on the one hand, um, I felt like we learned a lot and we were prepping the new people for the next experience and we we're prepping the unit for the next deployment we were getting ready to do. Um, and we knew what to expect a little bit more. Um, so the training was better. However, like there wasn't as much actual training happening because of that uh, shortage of aircraft instruct pilots, maintenance test pilots. So uh, that was challenging, but uh, not as challenging as, as a couple months later after the captain's career course. Um, so left Germany, went to the captain's career course, and the unit was actually pulling out of Germany. That was a lot of what I was doing that last year as this one was prepping the unit for the move out of Germany back to the U.S. and um, ended up going back to that same battalion uh, as they reflagged from a general support aviation battalion, you know, mainly flying kind of like big, big taxi cabs or buses uh, to becoming an air assault battalion. So um, we went from having two you know, line companies of eight aircraft each to having three line companies of 10 helicopters each. So my timing worked out where I went to the campus crew course and then I showed back up um, just as they were all arriving to Fort Riley, Kansas and um, kind of walked into command. And then they had, you know, by name requested me to come back and, and command and they gave me a line company and they gave me the new line company. So I showed up and I had a, uh, I think five people in the company. It was a captain who was the acting commander, who basically was a platoon leader but was the acting commander. And then I had like two or three specialists and two or three W2s, um, but no IPs, no, you know, no instructor pilots, no main test pilots, any of those. And it was like, in a year from now, you're gonna deploy to combat. And I'm like, you know, I'm supposed to have 50 people and 10 helicopters. I've got extra helicopters. I've got no people. I've got none of the, the people that I need. And uh, and for the most part, the people that I did have and the, the few that came over that next month or so, the first 15 or so we got were all people that came from Germany from a bunch of different units. They came from like five or six different companies in Germany, and they felt like they were the outcast, right? Like the rest of the battalion had come together from Germany. You know, the two other line companies, the headquarters company, the maintenance company, they all were had been together for some time um, and our group was all new and they were kind of outcast, right? Like they were the, you know, the, the units in Germany were told to give up some people and they were the people that were given up. And, you know, they weren't uh, from their perspective, they didn't feel like the units were volunteering their all-stars. Um, they were getting rid of the people that, um, you know, were, were less trained or, or were problems for them or for whatever reason. So, there was a little bit of the um, Island of Misfit Toys thing going on. Morale was low. It was tough. Um, but, uh, and, and then, you know, trying to get trained. Um, we, we got a bunch of people from, from flight school and from basic training. So we had a very young unit um, and needed to train them all up, but didn't have the you know, test pilots to fix the aircraft. <laughs> We didn't have the instructor pilots to train the people. We didn't have a flight instructor to train the crew chiefs. So like, I, I really couldn't do the job at all without help from the other company commanders. And, you know, they were, they were like, look, I'm trying to get my unit ready for deploying in a year. I can't give you 
I can't loan you a maintenance test pilot or a instructor pilot for the day. Sorry, you're screwed. So that was a, a tough year. Um, kind of gave me a little bit of a idea of what it's like to build a company, you know, uh, for, you know, a little uh, foreshadowing for to the future. But it was like having a little startup and trying to build it and then create a culture that wasn't so negative and that, that um, you know, create the cohesion. It was at that time, I, I really wished I had paid a little bit more attention in PL 300 because all I could remember was, you know, create a t-shirt and have a barbecue. Right. Um, <laughs> and so that's what I did. You know, we, we created t-shirts um, and we became the black sheep, right? Like we kind of embraced the, that we, that nobody wanted us. Um, and, and that came a source of pride and, and uh, we ended up coming together and it ended up being an amazing year. It was awesome. Um, and went to Iraq and this time a known 15 month deployment. It was during the surge from September 07 to, to December of 08. And um, it was a, a much different mission, uh, but really cool. Uh, and, and got to do a lot of little small unit air assaults, taking out what was really the precursor to ISIS, the, you know, Al-Qaeda in Iraq for the most part. Um, you know, the surge mostly happened in Baghdad. So most of the people left there. We kind of struck the deal with the Sunnis. So everything in Anbar was kind of good. And so any bad actors essentially went up into the Diala River Valley for the most part or, or up um, towards Mosul. And we basically were responsible for the AO, everything north of Baghdad. So we did a lot of small unit air assaults in uh, the Diala River Valley and, and up all the way up towards uh, Mosul and, and out in Talafar uh, in that region. So it was, it was a cool time. It was fun. Sure. One of the things I remember most of company command was as a company commander, like developing your platoon leaders um, and developing their additional duties to help the company run was huge. Um, so making yeah. sure your arms room was good, make sure your NBC room was good, making sure that your supply room was good. Um, and aviation units slightly different. I mean, not only are you training on the individual collective tasks of pilots who can operate their equipment and then fly collectively. Um, but the warrant officers carry a lot more burden, um, because of, of their skill sets. How did you build your platoon leaders and your warrant officers when you were building that team before deployment? Yeah, that is, that is a fantastic observation and, and question. It, the warrant officers are somewhat like a mix between, you know, a platoon sergeant in a, in a regular unit and like an XO or I, I don't know. They're, they're this weird thing in aviation where they're officers. So, you know, half my company was officers, um, but they don't, um, they have like a specialty, right? Like their, their main thing is like, look, my job is to fly. I'm supposed to be an expert at this. Don't give me these additional duties. And I'm like, hey, look, I, I've got to have... <laughs> Additional duties, you, you got to do these other things. So, you know, I was fighting with them a lot uh, and, and button heads with them. And especially about training my platoon leaders. You know, they're, that first year before we deployed, I spent a lot of time trying to develop those platoon leaders so that they would be ready to be commanders. And I, I knew, like, we, we work, you know, all of us in the Army work in a profession where at any time somebody could die and you have to replace them, right? Like, we can't spend time learning how to do someone else's job after they're gone. So 
was trying to prepare him and was like, look, if anything ever happens to me, I want each of you prepared to be the company commander. So train them to be platoon leaders, but also how to do my job and then try to get them to do the same thing for their pilots and cross train their warrants. But that first um, that year we were getting ready, we would spend a lot of long nights um, where they, I would have them do the flight schedule and it's complex, you know, just putting together a weekly flight schedule, trying to balance people's, you know, who's on days, who's on nights, what taskings you have to do, what training had to be done, what aircraft were available, how many hours you could fly in the aircraft before they went into scheduled maintenance, all this kind of stuff. It's a very complex, you know, systems engineering problem that takes a long time to figure out. And my... I, once a week, we would have a meeting with all my platoon leaders, the platoon sergeants, my senior uh, instructor pilot, one of the maintenance test pilots, um, and the um, either the first sergeant or the, the flight instructor who trains the crew chiefs, and put everybody's schedule together. You know, when they would show up to work, you know, you'd only had 12 hours a day. You had to give them so much time off. They, If you were switching them from days to nights, there were all these requirements. Um and they struggled with it a lot. And my, my warrant officers that were there used to get so angry at me and be like, why are we here for like three hours? I could do this in like 15 minutes. Just let me do it. I'm like, no, <laughs> these guys need to learn how to do it. And they used to hate me. And the platoon readers hated me too, right? Like I was this jerk that made them do this. Um, but then when we got to Iraq, like they were doing the flight schedule all the time and I didn't need to supervise it anymore. And they, they learned it and they, they got good. So I think the light bulb definitely clicked with some of the uh, lieutenants. And I think they realized the value in it later. Uh, the warrants, some of them definitely held a grudge. And, you know, I was not the most favorite guy. You know, it wasn't popular uh, with, with the warrants a lot of times um, because of that. But um it was, it was tough uh, at, at times, you know, um, managing, you know, it, it, they say, you know, leading, leading the warrant officers is kind of like trying to hurt cats, right? It's, uh, <laughs> they have the warrant officer liberation front, the wolf pack, um, you know, they, they, they like have a uh, undercurrent, like this defined, um, you know, or admitted, uh, counterculture and that they're, they're deliberately trying to, you know, undermine, you know, like, Oh, I've got PT tomorrow. No, I'm not showing up with that. You're like, no, you have to. And they'd be like, no, I'm just not going to, you know, it was, it was a very weird thing. Um, kind of like having a lot of teenagers, um, but who are experts at their jobs, you know, like, uh, and they, they were, they were great, but they were also a huge headache. So, Switching from the line company to the maintenance company where it was, you know, 125, mostly soldiers in a, a typical structure with squad leaders and team leaders and platoon sergeants and a first sergeant. And, you know, it was a, a very different experience uh, leading the maintenance company. I, you know, I had a couple of maintenance officers, but like we weren't doing PT. So they basically were just doing their job and it was much easier to manage uh, with them. And that that's that next question. As you talked about the difficulty of balancing flight schedules and, and flight planning um, from the assault company's position, then you move over to the maintenance company and you have services, you have unexpected services or um, unplanned services. 
And you have to maintain this op tempo going forward. How did you do that and, and balance that with the work, um, the work cycles of your soldiers? Because they don't have the same limitations that your pilots do. But you, if you have them work too hard and they make a mistake and it's not checked, you could have catastrophic yeah. problems. Absolutely. It, that was the challenge that I was handed by the tank commander when he, when he asked me to take over. Um, to be honest, when I changed out of command, he offered me the second command. I initially turned it down. It was like, I, I'm pretty burned out. You know, like, I appreciate it, sir. It's an honor, but like, no. And he basically was like, I don't care. You're going to do this. Um, he, he's like, look, I've got, I've got a problem. The maintenance company morale is extremely low, right? Like they're, they have no kind of zip to them. Like there, there's no hustle or, or, you know, sense of urgency. It was, you know, from their perspective, they never left the wire, right? Like they were always on the airfield. They slept in their little chews. They would come to work, work a 12 hour shift and go back to their chew seven days a week for 12 hours a day. And for, for 15 months, right? Like, and they, they were six months at that point into the, the tour. They knew they had nine months to go and they were just burned out and bored and they didn't really care. And, you know, the battalion commander wanted me to try to change that. Uh, so the scheduling of the maintenance was rel- actually the easiest p- part because of those warrant officers that I had. They managed that and they were experts at it. And so, like, I had to get very for the most part, I didn't get involved there, you know, which is good because I knew way less than they did. So, you know, basically trusted those um, leaders to, to manage most of that. But my challenge was more on the um, junior enlisted, especially those, you know, PFCs and specialists and, and, and E5 sergeants that um, just were getting in trouble for stupid things you know, being late or missing formations or smoking when they're not supposed to, or, you know, smoking in their chew, like whatever the dumb things they were getting in trouble for, it was just, you know, they, they couldn't see how what they were doing mattered, right? They didn't, like, they call home or were on MySpace, you know, at the time, um, talking to friends, their friends like, oh, you're in combat. How cool is that? What are you doing? Are you getting shot at? Like, they're like, no, man, I go to work every day and I turn a wrench and, and then I come back. It, you know, like it just, it was hard for them. So we worked really hard at trying to help them see how, what they did mattered. Right. And, and try to change the, um, the attitude to more of a customer service, um, attitude where I, you know, I went out, luckily I had good relationships. I'd been a platoon leader in, in one of the flight companies. I'd commanded another one and was like best friends with, with the commander of the third. And so I went and talked to all those pilots and was like, look, anytime you get really good service from my people, please like, you know, point it out or let me know. Um, if you're not getting good service, let me know. And, and I was like, look, I'm trying to change this, um, the attitude and the morale and, and you guys could really help me. And, and started to get some of that feedback and then it just kind of snowballed, right? As soon as you were able to celebrate some of those small wins, they were like, oh, wow, the, the, these really cool pilots that they all worked up to, like, cared about me. And they, they came in, shook my hand after the mission and told me how, like, they, they were going and doing this important thing. And, and they, 
had something break right as they're getting ready to take off and I came and fixed it real quick and they were able to make mission. Like I felt good about myself and we celebrated it in front of the company and you know, it was, uh, those, the impact of very small things, uh, really kind of turned that tide a bit. And then that, com- uh, plus making it where they could become crew chiefs, right? Like, so if they, the, performed really well, we would promote them in the crew chiefs. And if they didn't have an MTO spot, we would train them up as door gunners and they would actually be able to go out and fly on missions. Um, and that helped a lot. But on the flip side, uh, if anybody messed up in the flight companies, you know, they didn't do any discipline there. They just sent them to the maintenance company. So I got all the, the problem kits um, as a result. So it had its challenges, but uh, different type. Yeah. And I just want to highlight that was I was a, a Huey helicopter mechanic. And you come in as a as a private, Whoa. <laughs> and you have to earn your keep um, as a as a maintainer before yeah. they let you be a crewman. And so you watch all those Vietnam movies where the the crew chief or the door gunners there. Um, and so you enlist thinking you're going to fly in helicopters, and you show up and you just turn wrenches. Yeah. And and like you said, being a crew member as a, a part of a crew as an enlisted man as a mechanic is is everything because that's why you think you're showing up. And you have to earn your dues doing those services and doing that maintenance in the maintenance company before you can ever crew chief. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And that light at the end of the tunnel is huge. Um, and if somebody tells you like there is no, no light, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you have to really love Greece and you really have to love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's a very relaxed, um, within the flight company. It's much more Air Force-ish where there's a lot of first names thrown around, right? Like it's uh, all the pilots for the most part call each other by first names except to the, you know, uh, lieutenants and captains and, you know, such. But they also a lot of times call the um, crew chiefs by their first names. Uh, crew chiefs will call them back, sir, ma'am, but, but um, you know, getting called your first name as a young soldier, like there's something to that, right? And you feel like Hey, you know, we're all in this together and it's, uh, it ends up being super meaningful. And yeah, that's the reason they all joined. They didn't want to, most of them didn't want to turn wrenches. They wanted to fly. So. And so you end your second company command. Um, you redeploy from Iraq for your second, from your second deployment. Um, talk me through your, uh, your movement to become a West Point instructor. Oh, so while I was in command, uh, still the line company, I think this is right before I found out I was about to change over uh, to the maintenance company. I was at that point where I could either drop my packet to get out or, uh, you know, shortly after we got back, you know, so it was a year out from the end of the appointment plus 90 days and my commitment was up from flight school. And I turned in my paperwork to, to uh, refrad. And uh, battalion commander came back and basically was like, no, <laughs> I'm not accepting this. And, and we, we had the longest talk we'd ever had, probably for like two and a half hours in the DFAC from like midnight to 2 a.m. one night. And he kind of inspired me to stay in the Army and, and continue to, to serve. And um, so I put in a, a packet to teach at West Point and um, shortly afterwards got accepted. And they said that... Uh, I got, uh, you know, was, was able to go to any school that they, that I could get into. 
And so um, applied to a couple business schools and, um, and after we got back, uh, got accepted into Wharton. So I went to Philadelphia, did my MBA for two years, and then uh, went back to go teach in uh, the Behavioral Sciences and Leadership Department, BSNL, or as, or as the cadets affectionately call it, uh, Bullshit and Lies. <laughs> um, and, and predominantly, what's funny, uh, going back to you know what I, everything I'd forgotten about PL300, I, for the first year, all I was going to do was teach PL300. <laughs> So <laughs> going back to, to teach, you know, didn't learn it well enough the first time. So they had to come back and, and study it and uh, teach it again, you know, but uh, that was, that was an awesome experience. Like one of I mean, platoon leader time and company command time were, were very rewarding, right? Like the, the whole relationships that you create with people um, as a leader and, and, you know, serving together in those hard times, uh, combat and prepping for it were rewarding, but like teaching was what I felt like I was meant to do. Right. Like it, it was awesome. I loved it. Wasn't, maybe I wasn't the best at it, but, um, <laughs> I really loved connecting with the cadets and trying to inspire them and, and, you know, hopefully teach them so that they'd remember a couple more things than t-shirt and barbecue. But, um, it was, it was a good experience. Um, there were some tough times that first year. I, I got selected to, to lead a new initiative for the department. Um, Bob McDonald, the CEO of Procter & Gamble, had donated a couple million dollars and to start a global leadership conference for undergrads. And originally, it was uh, 06 from the department that was going to lead it with uh, the help of three majors. Um, and then, and so I got put on that team, uh, as like the one junior guy. And then about a month into the beginning of the planning, that colonel got sent off to an individual tasker for Afghanistan in December. Uh, both of the other majors were PCSing in June. And so they basically were like, uh, buddy, you, you should lead this. Uh, you know, we'll help out when you need it. Um, <laughs> so it kind of fell on me. Um, and then eventually we added, uh, two other great guys, Lou, Lou Nemec and, um, Mike Irwin, uh, Irwin's a O2 guy. Um, but was okay, you know, for, for an O2 guy, he, he was, he was great. Um, and then Lou, a Rati guy, but amazing officer. And the three of us kind of planned the conference again, another kind of startup like experience doing it. From scratch, nobody knew what to do. Conceptualizing it, working with Bob and, and his um, chief of communications um, strategy, pretty much weekly. You know, being on, uh, you know, he would call my cell phone on, you know, uh, at night, I'd, uh, and we'd start talking through like whether Hillary Clinton or, or Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education, were going to come and be at this conference. And I was like, this is weird, um, but, but very rewarding experience. Conference went well. Second year, kind of expanded it. Um, you know, we brought in people from all over the world um, and then CEOs and, you know, um, cabinet secretaries and, and a bunch of people to mentor these people. Um, and second year, we expanded the staff quite a bit. And we had like nine majors, I think, and a couple of lieutenant colonels. I argued with my boss that it should be an 06 leading it and he kept me on it. Uh, so it was a lot of my spare time. Uh, so I didn't get the experience 
maybe all the social stuff that happens when you're back there as a second time, you know, you, a lot of my, my peers, my friends, um, you know, we're spending a lot of time with their family and having barbecues and enjoying football games and stuff like that. And I, I was working a lot of light long nights and burning the candle at both ends, but, uh, it was all right. It, you know, we weren't a lot. Um, and then, uh, ended up during that time, uh, switching over to become an ORSA kind of had decided I was going to be away from aviation for six years between, you know, two in business school, three teaching at West Point, a year in ILE. Plus, you know, the nine months after we got back, I wasn't flying. So I was like, man, after like seven years trying to go back and fight to get like a KD position um, and, you know, then try to get trained up again to fly after all that time, it just didn't really appeal to me. Plus looking at the majors that I had seen, they all looked miserable, right? Like, I, I, you know, any XO or S3, like, they never seemed like they were enjoying their job. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that. It's like, I might want to be a battalion commander, but I don't want to do, do that stuff. And, you know, my undergrad degree was in uh, operations research. Um, I liked solving problems. I was like, oh, let me go try out this ORSA thing because I still want to be in the Army and serve. And, and uh, so that's what I thought I'd do after that. Um, in the Army three, it like the first problem was a big, big problem. They're asking you yeah. to, to look at combat operations analysis uh, and the future Army posture. Like, look at everything we've done recently, and tell us what we should be doing in the future. That's crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Orsa um, community did really well trying to identify like where first time Orsas should go. And, um, you know, I was considered kind of an, uh, obviously junior ORSA. So they have a couple of places, usually the trade-off analysis centers, um, or, um, a couple places in the Pentagon, um, that, that they'll send you where there's a big population of horses, right? So you're not out there on the ORSA Island. You're not like a, a division ORSA and you're like, I don't know how to do this job. Who am I going to learn from? There's nobody here to teach me. They send you a place where it's, you know, I went to a place where there were 30 other horses in the organization. So um, it was a big problem, but, you know, I showed up and there were already five or six other people working on it. So, you know, I got thrown onto the project. So it wasn't um, as challenging as I expected. There were challenges, but it was more um, about the organization, the organizational culture. Um, and, and some leaders there that uh, were a little tougher um, to deal with. But And you were there for three years, and then you get nominated to go work um, for, for SOCOM as the, as the Deputy Chief Strategic Analyst. Yeah, How for, did you pull that off? <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I, I, I was trying. You know, I, I grew up in the Baltimore, D.C. area. I got married. Uh, while I was teaching at West Point, my wife was from Baltimore. We were trying to get back to the Baltimore, D.C. area so she could be in her family. I have a um, – my oldest is uh, my stepson. Um, his dad lives in the Baltimore area, so we wanted him to be close to his father. We were trying to get something you know, at the Pentagon. And that's like 80% of the, the worst jobs are there. And uh, instead, they were like, hey, this job's opening up at Soxcent. Will you go fill this? And I was actually going to replace one of our classmates. Uh, so Riley Post – was uh there he was the chief of strategic analysis um i don't think he had pinned 05 yet but he had been selected 
And um, so he he was the lead orsa in the organization. I was supposed to come and, and replace him, but uh, unfortunately, it had been passed over for promotion. So I ended up coming and, and working for another major. Um, and then he became a lieutenant colonel. And so it's, I, I honestly don't know how it worked out, but uh, it was a great, great job, cool mission. Um, obviously, Sock sent in 20, from 2017 to 2019, um, and, and prior to that, prior to me getting there, we were definitely in the fight with ISIS, right? Um, and then also other bad actors in the, in the um, central region. Um, so did a lot of TDY missions out to uh, throughout the Middle East to um, evaluate our partners, our partner forces. And try to provide some metrics to to determine how prepared they were and where we needed to focus our efforts with them. Um, got to do some cool training with a special mission unit in Jordan. Um, I guess all I can say is tried to help them use marketing skills to improve their information operations against ISIS, and then some ORSA type things on how to plan those deliberately and, and measure the success of them and then kind of adjust off that. So that was, that was kind of cool. Um, and then living in Tampa was awesome. You know, the air force base uh, was quite different than my experience on white sands missile range and, and Fort Riley, Kansas and Fort Rucker, Alabama, <laughs> you know, McDill air force base. I you know lived across the street from um, four star general hotel, <laughs> funny enough. Um, <laughs> And, you know, behind his house was the bay, right? Like we were blocked from the, the bay. It was beautiful. It was, it was awesome. But uh, my, my wife definitely likes that assignment. Um, but it also was challenging because that was the time when, you know, got passed over for promotion. Um, the first time while I was at White Sands and then um, again there and then again there. <laughs> um, and, it you know, there was a, a time where we were deciding – should we leave, right? At, at year 16, 17, um, should we just get out of the army? Uh, and w- we might not have a choice, right? Like if this next promotion board doesn't go well, like we might be forced to. Um, and feeling like going from the high of, you know, dual company command, Wharton MBA, teaching leadership at West Point, like doing the McDonald Leadership Conference. Like I, I my ego probably had, had, gone uh gotten kind of big bigger than it should have and i definitely got an ego check there (laughs) and it lasted a couple of years and it was um tough you know running into a bunch of classmates and other people you know and in the px or at you know when you go to a brief and they'd look at you and they'd see you're still a major and they'd be like dude what did you do you know like do you sleep with one of your subordinates did you get a dui like why aren't you promoted it's like, uh, I don't know, man, I just, just didn't get selected. Um, and it was, uh, it was tough. And there were definitely a lot of times that it was like, how do I need to redefine what success looks like? Right. Like we, we've probably been told or, or conditioned over the course of our time at West Point in our careers that like a successful, um, a successful 20 year career, like you could have successful careers that got out after five or got out after eight or 10, whatever. But if you stayed for 20 years, it felt like what we a successful 20 years was you made 05 and had battalion command. And I was like, well, I'm not a line operational guy anymore. So the battalion command thing's not there. But like not becoming a lieutenant colonel was, you know, crushing. And a lot of 
my identity was wrapped up in in being an army officer, right? You, um, if somebody, if, if anybody was going to introduce me, a friend or a family member to someone new, they'd be like, oh, this is my friend Brett, or this is my son Brett. He's an officer in the army, right? Like that's the very first thing they say, or he went to West Point, or, you know, like it was so much of your identity that like to fail in that was pretty crushing. Um, and then, you know, there was definitely some dark times and try to focus on what I could control, you know, try to continue to do well at the job and focus on being a good father and being a good husband and probably didn't, um, especially the husband part, uh, during a lot of that time because, you know, you, you bring some of that darkness. I, I, don't, I don't know what the right word is, uh, to, to the relationship. And, and as much as I'd try to not focus on it and try to focus on the positive, it, it was definitely tough. It's one of those things. And, and I'm going to wrap up some, some, some ideas is, when, when you're an aviation officer, it's difficult to wrap around you um, when you come in that you can't be the best pilot. Yep. You Because the warrants are the ones that get all the flights. You can't be all-knowing of the helicopter because the NCOs and the soldiers are the ones that break it apart and put it together. Mm -hmm. um, even the warrant officers with the, the test pilots and the training officers there are, are very heavily involved in the training and the progressions of the officers. And so as an aviator, you have to fill the gaps between skills with leadership. And it's a it's a tough nut to wrap your hand around at first. And you see it when you when you talk about your time as a platoon leader, you talk your time as a company commander um, and building that unit from scratch and, and giving it a cohesive culture and then getting slid over to the maintenance company and turning the morale around is how do you find that niche? Where do I add value? Because I may not be the best at almost anything, but I have to be the best at pulling us together to work cohesively. And I think you saw that uh, that success while you were at West Point, um, leading the McDonald uh, uh, Global Leadership Conference process. Uh, and then you went back to this scrum of 30 Orsas, just kind of nugging away at Fort Bliss. And, and that fulfillment was lost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're there, you're at McDill. Uh, you've been, you've been punched in the face a couple of times. Uh, talk me through, um, the army enterprise marketing office and what was that? Like? <laughs> so, um, it was funny. The, so it's the summer of 2019. I had uh, just gotten, uh, you know, the year before my, my first year at, at uh, Suxon had gotten like a top block OER. It was really good. My uh, branch manager was like, dude, you're, you're lock. You know, you've got X number out of the last X number of MQs. You, no one with this profile has ever not been promoted. You're, you're going to be fine. So I thought I was going to get promoted. Um, get called into the office of the, uh, deputy commander for Soxent and uh, who happened to be my neighbor and our kids were friends and um, thought, Oh, this is just a formality. He's going to congratulate me on, on getting promoted. And he was like, you know, sorry, you didn't get promoted. <laughs> and uh, it was again, crushing probably maybe even more so than the first time 
because it was so, you know expected. Um, got Cellconned, um, and at that point was like, well, if that didn't do it, you know, I don't know what it is. I guess we're gonna do these next two years and then be forced to retire. And thought that kind of, hey, you know, it could be worse. We're here at a great place. You know, we'll start planning ahead. Um, and that was kind of the plan after that. And then a couple of weeks later, I get an email from someone at the Pentagon uh, in the office, the assistant secretary of the Army for Manpower and Reserve Affairs and said that they were starting this new marketing organization. They were looking for people that had experience um, teaching marketing or ever have done marketing or in, at West Point other than teaching PL 300. That was the other course I took or taught was marketing um, to management majors. And, you know, we're looking for people with top tier MBAs, you know, not a lot of those in the army. So I reached out and we're like, hey, we'd love to interview you for this position, set up a time. You know, I did some prep work. I was like, oh, this, this could be interesting. You know, looked up what's going on and um, go to take the call on the, on the day it was happening and answer the phone. And it was the assistant secretary of the army. Um, it, like I thought someone from his office was calling and he, he, it was him. And I was like, uh, Dr. Um, not Wolfowitz, not Paul Wolfowitz. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember his name right now, but, uh, anyways, he basically started talking about the the job and the opportunity and we get about 10 minutes in this phone call and he hasn't asked me a single question. Like I thought this was an interview. I was like prepped and ready and realized at that point, this wasn't an interview. This was a pitch. And, you know, he finishes up and he's like, so does this sound like something that's interesting to you? Would you be interested in doing this? Uh, moving to Chicago, standing up this new organization, uh, a digital focused um, marketing organization. And I was like, sir, it, it sounds awesome. I think I would be very interested, but I, I don't think I'm the right person for you. And, you know, like <laughs> you're the guy in charge of all promotions. I haven't been, I've been passed over for promotion the last four years. Uh, the army doesn't think that I am the type of officer that should be, you know, Lieutenant Colonel or that should continue his career here. Um, and he basically was like, uh, I disagree. I think you're absolutely the right, you know, person for the job. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of new opportunities. It's this new branch kind of like saying you, you do this and you're going to get promoted and you can continue your career if that's what you want to do. So I went home, talked to the wife. We were kind of ready to retire. She was kind of hating the army at the time. I, I was as well, to be honest. Um, and I kind of got excited about it. And I talked to her and was like, what do you think we should do? And I knew she was going to say, no, absolutely not. Like, let's, let's finish <laughs> this out and let's move back to Baltimore, you know? And uh, she goes, I think you have to do it. And I was like, what? Like, I was completely caught off guard. She's like, how many times does the assistant secretary of the army call and like personally recruit someone to do something? And I was like, I don't know. Brian out a lot. She's like, okay, well, but this is probably an opportunity that, that you need to take. So we decided to do it. It was really quick. A couple of weeks later, I had orders. Uh, we PCS'd. You basically did a duty move because you know, couldn't get movers scheduled in time. You know, they were, this was July. They were standing up the unit in August. Um, so kind of showed up um, and it was tough. You know, we showed up at first and there was uh, the general who was in charge um, and 
uh, colonel, chief of staff, two lieutenant colonels, and I think three other majors were there. And we were working out of a break room, like the, the six of us, I think, were working on like fest tables with MiFi's and laptops in the break room of like the Corps of Engineers office in Chicago, in downtown Chicago. Like, and, you know, as people were coming in to get their vending machine drinks or, you know, grab something out of the fridge, they're like, excuse me, sir, bumping past the general. Um, and uh, it was definitely the startup type of experience again. And um, was excited about those. It, it was cool. It was it was a very tough experience, uh, especially, you know, when, when COVID hit, um, you know, recruiting got tough and, um, you know, everything kind of changed. But then, but the plan was, we thought we were going to do that for for the rest of my career. I thought I might do it another ten years. We went, we bought a house in Chicago or in the Chicago suburbs, thinking we would be there at least five years. My my son, oldest, was in eighth grade. We figured he would stay at least through high school, and then we'd reevaluate after that. And um, so they did the little selection process to see you know had the people 400 some people apply for the 40 spots to become the army marketing officers and when i went to go put my packet in i read the announcement and i wasn't eligible because i was a cellcon major and i kind of went to my boss and was like sir what the hell like i'm not able to do this and he's like oh let me talk to somebody we talked to the general he's like ah sorry you know like don't don't what to do uh, i finally was like screw it i'm putting a packet anyways i'm um, let them figure it out. So, uh, ended up, um, getting the packet came out in March. Um, and at this time was also, so this is now March of 2020. Uh, our promotion board met, I think in this January and February. Uh, and if I didn't get selected for Lieutenant Colonel at that board, I had a mandatory retirement date the next year. So, um, you know, was like, well, we'll see what happens. Um, in March, the results came out. Uh, HRC um, approved an exception to policy to allow me to become the new Army Marketing Officer. I assumed, well, they've got the board results from the promotion board. That means I got selected to Lieutenant Colonel. Awesome. Cool. Everything's good. We're going to do this marketing thing for the next few years. And for the next two months, that's what we thought. And then the board results came out and I had been not selected again. And it was like, now you are forced to retire next year. And uh, we uh, fought it. You know, I <laughs> tried uh, everything we could, you know, had all the colonels there and the colonels that were represented at the Pentagon, you know, called HRC and try to talk to them and see if there were options, um, try to talk to the Secretary of the Army, see if there were options and they basically were like, sorry, you know, too bad. Um, and so that that last year was maybe the worst of all of them. You know, each each one stung. Each time you got passed over, it stung. But that last one, because there was hope, right? Like it it made um, that that uh, I don't know. It felt like what felt like a failure. Um, sting a, a lot more and definitely you know that combined with you know working from home and and all the things that were related to uh, that year uh, made for a, a rough definitely a rough year 
definitely some dark places. You know, a couple of our classmates, you know, committed suicide. We had those calls uh, that brought everybody together, and that was super helpful. You know, um, talking to you know Michelle Farmer and, and some some other people um, after those calls, Carolyn Cron, um, you know, and messaging with people as a result of that was uh, super helpful. Um, but but was definitely a tough time. What did you pick up from your, your time and everything at BSNL and then your time at the um, the Army Enterprise Marketing Office? What did you pick up from those experiences? Um, because, I mean, I understand the, the background of Big Army is slapping you around, but, um, man, those experiences with, with your, your bosses, those experiences with industry – um, the skills and the people that you're meeting, they're not inconsequential. Yeah. I mean, I, I met a ton of amazing people, right? Especially that group that I came into BSNL with, you know, Dave Wout and um, Marlo, I'll call him Alphabet. I'm going to butcher his name if I said Gustav Brock Deus. Um, I probably left out two or three syllables there, sorry. Um Russell Lemore, a couple of those guys that were in BSNL, got very tight with them. Super smart. It felt like a little imposter syndrome again, you know, um, just being around so many great people um, and learning from them, getting mentored by some of those lieutenant colonels and colonels that were there who were super smart and um, it was super helpful. And then going to the marketing office, there were a lot of really talented um, people that, that, that they brought in there and and even met some uh, people with the agency that we worked at. The the person that we're probably going to hire as our chief marketing officer um, for my new business is someone that we worked with at the agency there. Um, so it was it was very valuable, um, and you know took a lot away from it. Um, I think that that's helped me uh, since since I've retired. And speaking of that, retirement and what you're doing now, what is that? <laughs> it, uh, so retiring was tough. It was, um, you know, trying to do it during COVID at a remote place where you don't have a base and no support. It was, uh, we didn't, we were two-star command, but we had no like S1 or any HR representative. Um, so it was difficult trying to figure that out. Um, plus, you know, retiring, feeling a bit of like a failure, you know, didn't want to celebrate it, all that kind of stuff. Um, but had this idea kind of that year of 20, the fall of 2020, um, you know, I had always played fantasy football um, for, I don't know, 15 years or so. And it helped keep me connected like to my friends back home, to some army friends as we moved around and then with some Wharton friends after I graduated there. So I was in, uh, I think, four leagues, four different uh, fantasy football leagues on three different operators, you know, ESPN, CBS, Yahoo. Um, I had started playing daily fantasy probably back in 2016 or 17 once it started getting popular with DraftKings and FanDuel. And then in um, 2020, uh, sports betting was legalized in Illinois. And, you know, the offers were all there, like deposit $200, get $500 in free bets. And I'm like, oh, cool. That's free money. I like that. So I signed up for like five of them. I had DraftKings, FanDuel, BetMGM, Caesars, and Barstool. 
And that football season, I started, you know, on Saturdays and Sundays uh, when sports came back in 2020, um, was was very active and had, you know, those 11 different apps on my phone, go, you know, switching between them, trying to track as I'm watching the games, you know, all my different activity and how I was doing. Um, you know, I, I won a, a bet early on in the season for a couple thousand dollars and, and so took out all the money I put in and, and just had this house money that I was placing a lot of bets on. And I maybe have 30 or 40 bets out every weekend of, you know, 10, $20 or so each. But it got to be where I had so many, I had no idea what I had out there, right? I was like, I might be on both sides of this game. <laughs> I, you know, I'm signing up for every promo that they send me. Um, and so I was like, this is a terrible experience. Um, and so I started creating these spreadsheets where I could track every game that was coming up and every bit of action I had on it, whether it was a fantasy player or a DFS player or a bet. And it was a lot of work and it wasn't great. Um, so while I'm doing this, I got, you know, I was using Mint uh, as the financial aggregator, you know, pulling all my credit cards and checking accounts and savings and investments and stuff all into one place. And we'd get a notification being like, hey, don't don't forget your electric bills due tomorrow. Or, hey, uh, did you know you spent $100 more on groceries this week than you do on average or, you know, or clothing or whatever it would be. And I'd be like, man, why isn't there something like this for this for the sports industry, for all these different gaming? There's a ton of new apps as um, the sports betting uh, got legalized across the U.S. More and more people wanted to be a part of it. It's a little bit like internet of the early 2000s of the california gold rush um there's just all these new players um entering and it just made the market more and more fragmented and so there were more and more apps that you had to kind of keep up with and so i was like there's an opportunity here um to create this mint like aggregator service that makes uh those sports fans that play both fantasy and, and bet on sports make their lives a little more convenient uh, that, that allow them to kind of keep up with everything while staying engaged, you know, cause I spent more time staring at my phone and going through all these apps than I did actually watching the game. And that's what I really wanted to do or, you know, spending time with my kids or, or whatever it was. So um, after I retired, decided to just take my shot um, and a bit of it was probably, I felt like a failure. And I felt like I had to prove the army wrong, um, which is stupid, right? And which is maybe egotistical <laughs> or narcissistic, I don't know. But I felt like the army got it wrong and that I was talented and that I had worth and, you know, all these things that that's not what the army was saying. And it was just, you know, whatever. But um, I felt like I had something to prove, a chip on my shoulder. And I wanted to go and, and do this thing myself. And so for the last year, I uh, was building this app. Um, we were trying to launch um, before week one. Uh, we've been stuck in Apple app re review for the last 25 days. So that has not happened. But uh, <laughs> any day now, <laughs> this uh, app's going to get re released and hopefully, uh, hopefully do well. Um, you know, there's some... Um, struggle because I, I don't feel like I'm serving, right? Like I, I, I look at all these other, there's these veteran entrepreneur programs um, and I've, you know, joined some and you meet other people and they're like combating um, veteran suicide or helping 
you know, those wounded warriors with something. And they, like, I feel like they're giving back. And I'm like, oh, I'm just doing this fun thing with sports. And, and, um, and so it, that is a little tough and trying to find your new purpose of how, how I can serve. Um, you know, and there's other ways, whether it's mentoring other, um, you know, some, a lot of my former cadets who are now have got out and gone to business school, mentoring them or, um, you know, other entrepreneurs or, um, as we build the team, having some leadership, um, that, you know, always feels like service, um, or doing things, uh, that are not career related that can be service, uh, is where I'm trying to learn, um, how to find that purpose still, but still figuring that all out, but that's where I am now. As we wrap it up, um, I just want to bring two things is, is, is the aggregator of sports betting and fantasy football. Um, again, if you go back to what you have been really good at, whether it was um, standing up your company, um, pulling together uh, that maintenance company, um, it's that it, it's that combining of talents and people together to make something better than it was originally. The, the, the collective is better than the individual. Um, you can see that value that you're trying to add there. Um, the other part is, is that desire to prove somebody or someone, um, we just got to watch that sometimes. We all, we all run yes. into that problem. Um, whether it's, we're trying to fight our own ego to prove to ourselves that I'm good enough, or it's trying to prove, um, a naysayer that they're, that they're incorrect, that what they saw as your value, um, was not an accurate assessment. We just got to watch that. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. we all define our own success. And it, it's it's that definition that will bring us either happiness or sorrow. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it, it's something I'm very much aware of. Um, you know, every time, whether it's the negative feelings about the Army or the um, the – the motivation and the fire that's burning that's, you know, motivating me in these hard days here be coming from that place that is not where I'm going to find happiness. Um, and, you know, like then win is enough, enough, right? Like if, if the company does very well, we make millions of dollars, like, is, are, is that going to make you happy? No. So um, trying to find um, and redefine both my identity, um, the motivations, you know, what you draw joy from, uh, is, is still something I'm definitely working on. Uh, but I think that was a great point out. Again, I, I thank you very much for this opportunity to, to talk to you today, Brett. Um, is there any parting comments that, that you'd like to either say about West Point and, uh, the impact it's had on you or any comments to the class? Uh, well, I mean, I, I love West Point, right? I, I always have, uh, well, maybe not plebe year and, and sometimes while I was there, but, but ever since I've left, I always felt nostalgic towards it. You know, love the army team, even at the darkest times, um, when I felt maybe some negative feelings towards the army, it never was at West Point, right? Like I felt like West Point shaped me and then built me between the two times I was there so much. Um, and then I'm so close with and connected with so many of our classmates, um, especially those H1 guys, the, or, or the H1 people. 
and the, the F4 people um, that, um, you know, I, I, I will always love and cherish that, you know, um, a lot of, you know, the investors that have, that supported me and allowed me to start this company came from our class. Um, and, and that kind of support and, and, you know, how awesome, um, those root hogs are and the frogs and, and all of the H1 fun in the sun team is, um, I love, uh, you know, I, I feel very fortunate, um, that we are as close as we are. I mean, I talked to a bunch of other West Pointers that their class is nowhere as tight as ours was. Um, and, uh, I feel very fortunate for that. And I, I love you guys. So till duty is done. Till duty is done. Thanks, Brett. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please give us five stars and follow our podcast. It helps us gain visibility and helps us share our stories.